Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Like the Carrie Fisher interview was two and a half, three, four hours maybe, where we just talked and I was like so interested and felt so lucky to be there that there was no way I was going to go like, cut, we got it, let's get out of here. I was like, as much as you want to share, let's keep talking and see where this takes us. So a lot of them became very, you know, would head up, lead us off into space and then back to their childhood and then over here. You know, they were almost like, um, uh, you know, them analyzing in a very sober way their these therapy sessions that they did for themselves or what they learned, you know. It was really interesting. Right then, get on Netflix and watch have a good trip, Adventures in Psychedelics. It's a documentary that features some very, very famous faces talking about their psychedelic experience. And we've got the writer and director in Donnick Carey speaking with us on the podcast. So let's get into this. This is Stop and Search, brought to you by Acast in association with UK on Scooby's Pit Distraction Pieces Network. So here we go. Thank you so much for joining us. And as I said, we're joined by Donnick Carey, who is the writer and director of the new film, Have a Good Trip, Adventures in Psychedelics. And this film is amazing. It's on Netflix. Please, please do go watch it. It is full of the biggest celebrity names you can imagine. Carrie Fisher, Sting, Sarah Silverman, Ben Stiller. There's so many within this. The, the list is pretty literally endless. And as we discussed within this as well, the call list for this, this film was just huge in itself. So we get some behind the scenes action with Donick and what went into the film. But also, I mean, Donick's career in itself is worthy of a podcast episode. He's written for the biggest programs on the planet. We're talking Simpsons, but not just the Simpsons. We're talking about the biggest episodes of the Simpsons. Parks and Recreation, he's written for Letterman. He's, there's just so much to his career. So thank you so much, Donick, for donating time to, to have a chat with us. And on that note, I think let's just go for it. Oh, one other thing. We're going to talk a little bit at the start in the introduction about some of the career highlights that Donick has got. And along with that comes some memorabilia that he's collected. So if you listen to this episode on your cast app specifically, I'll put up some screenshots of the memorabilia that we're talking about so you can actually see it. And on that note, let's go check it out. So thanks a lot, Donick, for joining us on Stop and Search. 
Hey, I'm Donna Carey, uh, writer, producer uh, of many comedies, Simpsons and Letterman and Parks and Recreation. But um, we're here today to talk about Have a Good Trip, Adventures in Psychedelics, a new feature documentary that I made for Netflix. That's going to be my first question because your career is just amazing. You've got all these credits. You know, you've, you've, you've worked with Letterman, you've worked with The Simpsons for X amount of seasons. So firstly, this is going to be the most open-ended question it can possibly be, but what's that like to be involved in those prolific productions? Yeah, I, I mean, I attribute it to like a good... A good hunk of it I attribute to good luck and good fortune uh, for, you know, like these things, show business is a very fickle and weird animal to try to like, try to figure out. And sometimes the path paths open up and shows open up. Um, it's, it's a wonderful luxury to get to work on shows that I love. Like that has been um, a, uh, a thrill for me. I, I love the Simpsons. I love Letterman. I, I think if if anything, you know, Parks and Recreation was a was a blast and a dream to work on. Every show I've worked on, I've learned new stuff. Um, I think if anything that I can attribute that to is that I've just tried to point my compass at things that I love and then work at getting onto those rather than just getting jobs. Um, and that doesn't always line up, but um, you know, we're talking about a 30 year career now too. So I've had times where it doesn't line up and, and some good fortune in it lining up. So hard work and, and good I'm, luck is all I can say. I'm looking at the, cause we're doing this via zoom because we're still in lockdown conditions in this country. I imagine you are fairly similar there, but your, your room is just a smorgasbord of just brilliance. You've got, uh, the, the famous Japanese commercial of Homer Simpson over to your, uh, my left, your right. Um, and the cabinets just seem jam packed with just absolute treasures. What what have you got within that? Sure, I can give you a quick tour. Could, uh, if if we can move a little bit, I have a. Um, so first first we'll give you the tour of the Mister the Mister Sparkle Wall. This is um, I have a music charity called Musac.org, M U S A C K, um, where we buy instruments and support children's music programs, kids and oh, teens. Wow. Um, I wrote the Mister Sparkle episode last year. We did a fundraiser where we had. About 60 artists reinterpret Mr. Sparkle and then sell their art. I, of course, was at this fundraiser. I was hosting it, but I was also the biggest fan. So I ended up buying, I don't know how many are back here, five pieces. But here, here's, this is a Mr. Sparkle that a Native American artist named Greg Deal did for us. Um, there's some very trippy, this will take us into movie territory, but there's a uh, join me or die sort of freaked out Homer. Here's Homer battling a giant mushroom person with donut oh hands and uh, a couple more over here you got the uh, big wood carved mr sparkle and a very other trippy another trippy version so that's the quick that's the quick mr sparkle tour you've got a couple other items here this is like uh from the letterman show the original late night bumpers they would have these um you know sort of custom photos done so i'll give you those wow. and then yeah as far as the cabinets go um I, I, this is a wild mix of just stuff, but, uh, here's, here's like a, an assortment of, uh, Nixons and let's see what you can see there. Some, some political nonsense, some old SNL toy cars. Um, you know, I grew up a fan. Here's some, here's some England for you. I'm not sure the, the camera's doing. There's some, some British flag. Uh, uh there we go. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Um, 
But anyway, I, I won't, I, I'm doing terrible camera work. I can't see what I'm doing. Um, I grew up a big fan of, of Ma uh, Matchbox Lesney and, and uh, you know, Dinky and uh, uh, importing your, uh, your toys to America my whole childhood. Corgi, corgi cars. So many of the stuff behind me is, is things I collected when I was a little kid and have hung on to. Oh, wow. That's, I've got a whole collection of that as well. My dad used to collect dinky toys in Corgi, so I'm right on board with that. But I'm, I'm not just saying it because you're in front of me, but that, that Mr. Sparkle episode was one of my favourite Simpsons episodes because it's just, it's just so iconic. So to see that, that wooden carving is just gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was, that was, again, just like weird timing. So I, I was on The Simpsons. I just got there and it, it came time to write you know, they, they pass out episodes around the room and you, you kind of wait in line and then it's time for you to write one. And um, we I kind of drew this thing that it was like, well, we got to do a Marge episode. And I had been like a fan for years and was like, no, no, Homer, Bart, uh, you know, like had all these crazy ideas. And it was like, no, no, it's time. We got to do a Marge episode. I was like, I don't. Uh, what do we do? I We came up with a great episode for Marge where she like takes over the church basically from Reverend Lovejoy, but we needed a B story, something to go along for Homer to do. And it was like, huh, when I grew up on Nantucket, this is actually ties into exactly what we're talking about. I grew up on Nantucket Island. And one of the things that we did because it would shut down and there weren't malls or stores or things. So we would, my dad would go to the dump every weekend and go like, who wants to go to the dump? I was like, yeah, me. Cause you could go and pick and find stuff. Um, I want to show you something if I can quickly find it. One second, here. It happens to be right here. So this Matchbox car, this Unimog truck was found at the Nantucket dump when I was probably five years old. It was the first Matchbox car I ever collected, quote unquote. And um, so in my mind, going to the dump was this magical place where you could find beautiful things like this burnt and destroyed <laughs> toy car. <laughs> Um, but that came up when we were, when we were talking in the Simpsons room, I was like, oh, what if, what if, um, you know, they come back from church where Marge starts this job and then Homer's like, oh, thank God that's over with who wants to go to the dump. And they all go and, and start picking. And we kind of came up with this idea that Homer finds a box with his face on it. And then as a writer's room, we were, we were all like, well, what does that mean? And we basically had the journey that happens in the show was like, but why would his face be on a box? And we all kind of freaked out and then figured out a weird mystery that could, could ensue. So have you always been in the creative fields? Has it always been something that's, you know, you've been inspired by different weird little things like that? Is it is, is this just been your career path? Yeah, you know, because this, this um, I've been doing a lot of podcasts for Have a Good Trip, and, and a lot of them veer into talking about drug use and drugs and addiction or not addiction and positive and negative. And it's funny, I, I would, I've, I've been sort of thinking about how you how you're attracted to things and how they make you feel good and then you either get addicted or not. But... Comedy was the first thing. I was like kind of hitting on like, oh, I was an addict. Like I could not get enough of Steve Martin and Bill Murray and Monty Pythons and Faulty Towers. And, you know, like I'd find a new like vein of comedy and then want to try every piece of it and, you know, digest it. So I've always been, my my parents were theater people. They, they did plays. They ran the theater on Nantucket. And, um, you know, so I was always, there was always a theatrical element going on and a creative element. They were also writers and poets and basket weavers, like they made stuff all the time. And I coupled that with being addicted to this art form that I saw that all that mattered, well, punk rock and comedy to me were the two things that mattered, you know? Um, so I pursued those with as much uh, as much passion as I could. And 
um, found this way that you could actually make comedy. All I cared about was making people laugh my whole life. So that was like a no brainer that like, when I found out like, oh, people actually get paid for this? What, what? You know, that's crazy. So. So, I mean, this is going to be a fairly obvious question. I'm always reluctant to ask it, but does psychedelics and drug use go hand in hand with the creative field? Is, is it something that you've seen over the years or is it kind of more amplified in the media sometimes than what it actually is? Um, I, I think that, that there, you know, like there's probably something to that creative people are already, you know, prone to thinking out of the box, sort of more open to everything. And that doesn't necessarily mean drugs or whatever, but different, you know, like for me in comedy, the more things you learn about, the more places you can find humor and the more perspectives you can see the world through the more takes on a joke you can have, you know, or, or, um, and, and the more you can go into uncomfortable areas, you can often, often find humor there. So I think the creative, you know, fields lead to exploration and searching and learning. And, you know, uh, I don't know if, um, I, I also think there's, there's a, when I say addicted to comedy, like there is a performer thing where you're getting whatever the serotonin is or the, uh, you know, adrenaline you get from people laughing at a joke, you know, that is actually a chemical impulse. So if you, you know, like, I, I know a lot of people who, you know, but this happens across the boards though, but like opiates deaden that or alcohol deadens that so that you're not so frantically trying to get people to laugh or whatever. Mm. Now, I don't know what all the numbers would say on, on any of that, but I, I think in general, creative people are more open to stuff. So, and certainly in this movie, when I ask people to share stories, People from the world of rock and roll were way easy to get to say yes. From movies where they might be making a movie with Disney or something, a little less, you know, easy. You know, it's more like, how does it affect their career, you know? And mm. in the music industry, no big deal. And that, you know, it gets a little more conservative as you move closer into like, bank no bankers, no uh, Wall Street executives <laughs> were talking about this, you know? That was going to be one of my questions, actually, it was that I've got documentary making experience myself and I know what it's like having to, you know, come up with a list of, of dream guests. And I've read about um, Susan Sarandon and, 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 and how she was very much, you know, possibly and then not quite and it didn't quite work out. But the list of people you've got in this film in Have a Good Trip is just incredible. You've got Sarah Silverman, Sting, Carrie Fisher was incredible. Um, so what was that process like, finding the people making those connections and then actually getting them to commit to the film. That must've been a process in itself. Yeah. Yeah. The, the big secret with, with like getting people to do stuff is always like, Oh, you have some personal connection and you kind of break through usually like this wall of, of agents and managers and stuff and actually get somebody to go like, Hey, would you be up for this? Yeah. You guys are cool. Whatever. It's very hard to get that close to people. Luckily, you know, like, Having being in this business a long time, my producing partner, Mike Rosenstein, um, also has produced a lot of comedy specials. So we had a little bit of a, um, you know, a head start with like, oh, we could ask. We, we knew a bunch of people we could ask straight up, you know, um, a lot of them said no. And we were sort of surprised or a lot of them didn't have a story, you know, like not everyone has a funny story from from psychedelic experiences. You know, that's a that's a small percentage of people anyway. Um, but. You know, the, the interest, the fun, weird part was we ended up feeling like, oh, we need a lot of these because the stories are so random and none, not, not all of them are a perfectly formed story. We're starting to have these impressions about certain areas that we might want to have a lot of people weigh in on. So we hired a talent booker and 
we just put out a letter to everyone we could get it to, like anyone we thought, you know, we started with people we thought would be predisposed to this or might. And then we were also like, but also ask, you know, unexpected people because that could be really interesting and fun too. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the number is like, we interviewed a hundred people. Like we did interviews with a hundred people. We probably asked a thousand, you know, to get that hundred. Um, and um, it was the really fun part of that was like very randomly, like a, I'd open my email and there'd be a message from the talent bookers and they'd be like, you know, Ozzy Osbourne can do it today at noon and that's it. And you're like, uh, all right, let's get to Ozzy's house, you know, or Carrie Fisher's available tomorrow or Sting is available a year and a half from now in New York at this address at this time. And you're like, yes, we're in, you know, so it was very random how that fell, fell together. It was kind of persistence and, and asking everyone. So I'm going to take you back to the beginning. So we're talking about Have a Good Trip, which is on Netflix as we speak. Uh, quite new on Netflix. Where was the, the the initial seeds of this project? What what made you and your team conceive this? Where, what is the origin story? Yeah, so um, I mentioned I'm from Nantucket Island. I grew up on this little island off of Cape Cod. Um, uh, and we have a film festival there. And I've been on the board of the film festival for 20 plus years. Also on the board of the film festival is Ben Stiller because he summered there as a kid and has been been a big part of the Nantucket scene for a long time. So every summer I'll have a, you know, like a coffee with him. We'll cross paths and just, you know, share stories about show business and whatever. And on this particular 11 summers ago, that's how crazy this is. 11 summers ago, Ben told this story at the Nantucket Film Festival about taking LSD once. And I thought it was so funny and unexpected from him because as his story illuminates, his he doesn't seem like someone this would be good for, you know? He was like, it just amplifies paranoia and, and neuroses and all this stuff. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If that's, you know, if that's how your brain is wired, it's not gonna be the way to do it. So that seems so funny. And I, I had this inkling that like, well, if Ben would be open to sharing this, that would maybe get us a whole bunch of other people who would go like, oh, if Ben's in, I'm in, you know, kind of thing. Um, so that was kind of the inkling of it. it the movie, um, The Aristocrats, had come out a few years before, which, you know, had 50 plus comedians telling the same joke. And I was like, oh, that's such an interesting format of it really felt like a big dinner party where you get 50 of the 50 people that you would love to see at a table and then they all share stories together. And I was like, oh, let's let's try to do that with psychedelic stories. And the conversation about psychedelics has changed a lot in the last 11 years, especially in the last two or three years. But it was very taboo when we started and a lot of people were just like, oh, we don't talk about that. That's drugs or, you know, the the conversation was usually um, hard to bring up. But there were certain people who were into it and and then people that were surprisingly into it. And I started just collecting these stories and figuring out how, how they came together. But I also knew that animation would be a really great way to bring this stuff to life. We had done, you know, Mr. Sparkle, for example, but also I wrote an episode of The Simpsons called Doan in the Wind where... Homer accidentally doses the whole town and they're all tripping and stuff. So I was like, oh, animation is a great way to bring some of this stuff to life in a funny way, but also you can time travel with animation. You can bring dragons to life. Like, you know, um, and also since this is a taboo area, there's probably some pretty weird, funny, uncomfortable stuff to dig into. What I found was different than that, but that was the initial inkling. The, 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 is the, the story of Ben Stiller is amazing because, as you said, it's it's a very different tale to what you would imagine. So it was it was eleven summers ago, so essentially eleven years ago that this was conceived. Yes. 
my word, that that's a long time to come to fruition. So what was the next procedure from there? As you said, you you got the the call outs. You know, you put a lot of punts out there. When it actually came to filming, uh, did you have any expectation of what the stories might be coming back? Did did any of the the contributors let you know of what their tales were, and then you just captured that, or was it a journey yourself to hear what they've been through? It was a little a little bit of both. Some people we would get to do a pre-interview with, um, but in some ways it was nicer to hear the stories fresh and live because then it would spark a conversation that was kind of spontaneous and you know could lead anywhere rather than overthinking it. Um, but I will say I went in thinking, oh, these are all professionals. Uh, I'll just sit them down and and record their three-minute perfectly formed story from beginning, middle, and end, and then I'll send it off to my animation company and we'll animate that. That'll be so easy. And I sat down for a couple of these interviews. I think Carrie Fisher talks about it in the movie so well, of just like, you can't tell an orderly story on psychedelics. And I learned that very quickly. The first couple of stories, I was like, I was like, well, that one wasn't particularly funny, or that one was really like, that took 25 minutes to like explain, or that one was just terrifying. Not, you know, like they, they, it wasn't as orderly as I thought it was going to be. If like, I thought I would get like the top 10 comedians in the, in the world, you know, like I just line up Seth Rogen and, and Robin Williams and Jim Carrey, you know, like I get these great funny people and they'd share funny stories and then I'd be done. Um, what I found was, like that a lot of these stories, first of all, most of these interviews took place at people's homes. So I was being invited into a very intimate space, you know, that, that these were already a little bit revealing about where people were, how they, but then what they were doing was sharing something where it's unfiltered. It's your brain, what your brain reveals about you when you take this powerful tool or medicine or drug, depending on how you look at it. And that was incredibly intimate. So these became this other thing that was like, it wasn't about just like, no, 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 I just want the funny story. And more like a, a very interesting, like the Carrie Fisher interview was two and a half, three, four hours maybe, wow. where we just talked and I was like so interested and felt so lucky to be there that there was no way I was gonna go like, cut, we got it, let's get out of here. I was like, as much as you wanna share, let's keep talking and see where this takes us. So a lot of them became very, you know, would head up, lead us off into space and then back to their childhood and then over here. You know, they were almost like, um, uh, you know, them analyzing in a very sober way their these therapy sessions that they did for themselves or what they learned, you know, it was really interesting. Uh, for me, Carrie Fisher was was the absolute star because she she was so eloquent. When when did you film it with her? What at what stage was that? Um, we were probably you know the the part of the process was with these documentaries. First of all, it was it was like a almost like a hobby for me where I would shoot when I had a little downtime from other jobs because it wasn't a full time paying thing. It was just like oh we'll do that a little more. Three months would go by and we'd do a little more. Six months would go by. Um, also financing and celebrity schedules. So like the timeline just took the timeline. Um, the, uh, the, I'm sorry, what was the question though? I, I'm meandering already. So we've, we've, we've no, that's because it's, it's genuinely fascinating. Cause I, like I said, I've got a little bit of documentary experience and to hear someone like yourself, that's a lot more professional than me to hear that those timelines do exist. It's, it's just so cool to, and I, and I know a lot of the listeners would be interested in that process. But when, but when you did it with Carrie Fisher, as I said, that, for me, she was the standout storyteller of this because she's she's just such an orator. You know, we we know this about her. As she even said, 
uh, you was in her house, as you mentioned, the fact that you were in these intimate settings. And she, she actually said that this is the, uh, the house that Acid built because it is, it's just such a unique setting. So, so I wondered when you did film it with yes. her, at what point was that? So she was probably, I would say about at the halfway point ultimately is like probably in the middle of the process of shooting these things. We had started shooting a couple of reenactments, but we hadn't started animation. Um, I think the other thing that happened, you know, probably a year and a half after our interview with her was we were starting to structure the movie and it really felt like we were in a weird way. And then Michael Pollan's book came out, which is, which is he basically in a very scientific and sober way, tries a bunch of different drugs and then shares what he learns. And I was like, that's our movie. That's what we're doing, except we're doing it with Carrie Fisher and Sting and, you know, Ad Rock from the Beastie Boys or whatever. Um, and, you know, that was that, that, that book, you know, the conversation, we started reading more and more studies of how, these drugs were being used, but a lot of the stuff Carrie talked about, she was talking about when she was, she's bipolar, she was diagnosed as bipolar and she's like, oh, but when I took LSD, it actually, it's like the world flipped and everything made sense. And it was like, oh, this is a really interesting, as I'm, as I'm reading, hearing this people's anecdotal stories, but also reading these new studies that are, are, you know, using it to treat depression or addiction or, post-traumatic stress disorder, that there's some really interesting applications and how far away from knowing how our brains work we are as, as a civilization, like that we haven't done enough work there. And this is, this is uh, maybe a really interesting moment in history where that conversation is starting to turn again. So did you have to do a lot of research for the project or, or was it mainly based on anecdotal um, stories and evidence? Um, I tried to, you know, I tried to let our interviewees say what they wanted to say and share what they wanted to say, but then find a good balance of, you know, Ben's story certainly is not an endorsement of psychedelics. He's like, <laughs> I would not do these. They're not good for me, you know, but then, you know, we have, we have a psych, um, a professor at UCLA who was one of the first people to get FDA approved um, testing for using it for anxiety and, and seeing what it does to your brain and how it might be, resourceful. So we tried to include speakers from a variety of places and opinion and a diversity of stories to give this full picture of, of the reality of this stuff um, and counter some of the myths that I grew up on uh, in with, you know, in America, we had to have the war on drugs and, and um, this just say no campaigns and stuff were very big when I was growing up. And this, the first time psychedelics crossed my path, you know, it was in a, it was in a, state of people just going, if you even touch those, you'll jump out a window. And I was like, well, that's not true for everyone. Cause I've been to a Grateful Dead show or I've been to a, you know, a Dead Kennedys concert. I see people taking psychedelics. Like they're not, not everyone got up at the end of the concert and jumped out a window. So there's some, something here that's not r reality of this. So that was kind of the thought was like, well, if we can just share the reality of it, that'll be pretty interesting and let people share what really happened. Good, bad, a transformative, scary, whatever, that whole diversity of, of, of experience. How much have you followed the debate on, on the war on drugs? Because this is what this podcast is about. It's about uh, drug policy broadly. How much of that over your life have you followed, if you had an interest in it? Um, yeah, you know, certainly. So you were also asking, like, how much research, you know, like, we really just, we followed along with all these conversations that are going on. And we're really weighing how much responsibility do we have in this movie to explain 
And then we started to, to realize how many things that we could explain. The history of Timothy Leary is full and rich and, you know, the, the birth of the drug war, the, the Grateful Dead, the Merry Pranksters, the, the Cary Grant using it for therapy in the 1950s. Like, um, there's so many interesting corners. And we started to realize, and the legalization movement now as it, you know, of, of psychedelics as it kind of rides on the coattails of the marijuana revolution. And we started to realize like, oh, there's a documentary about that. There's a documentary about this. Some of them aren't funny. Some are very dry. Maybe not everyone's seen these, but our responsibility isn't necessarily to explain everything in this. There's a lot of gray areas, you know, but is to go like we wanted to lead with what we thought no one else had, which was these celebrity speakers talking about their real experiences. Um, as we've done that, of course, I've, you know, um, followed carefully along with the legalization movement in a lot of ways. I'm a parent. I have kids. I, I have like this dual role of like, yeah, I in general myself think things should be legal and regulated and taxed and and we should all benefit from that in, in different ways. Um, I also don't want candy bars that send you to the moon out there for my eight-year-old or 10-year-old. You know, my son and I were at a reggae concert and there was a thing of chocolate bars. He's like, dad, please, like when he was eight. And I was like, I, I just, that would be a really bad afternoon, Otis. You don't understand. But that felt like that doesn't benefit anyone that, that, that on that level. Um, and, and I also, like, what's really interesting to me with the psychedelics in particular is I think the strength of them isn't just, you know, legalization, the way marijuana was legalized, that they're, they're very different, you know, um, tools, drugs, medicines. I love that Sting, ref in, in our documentary, reframed psychedelics as he doesn't call them a drug, he calls them a medicine because they should be looked at that way because the, where they can contribute real positive uh, you know, applications is when they're taken seriously, when they're done in a controlled setting, when the people going into using them have done the work, know what they're looking for, have trained therapists to facilitate, integrate into your life, that you're doing it in an optimal way and with nature and good music and, you know, like some things you wouldn't think about when you're just getting a flu shot or whatever. Um, but the thing I also love to point out is that in some studies, psychedelics have been used to treat addiction, and they can often have shown that they can quickly, um, like, help people get over uh, different addictions. And it's interesting to think about how opiates are prescribed by pharmaceuticals as a medicine, and the and there's this drug that is illegal that can actually break you from that that isn't addictive. It's a crazy, you know, and so. I don't know. In a lot of ways, I'm a skeptic and go like, yeah, uh, we often get things wrong. Let's maybe take another look at this, you know. You, you do mention Sting and he, he does give such an eloquent account of in this because he not only does he mention about some of his trips in his own home farm and delivering a cow of all things. <laughs> but he also mentioned how he went to, uh, I think it was, was it Mexico? Um, where he had the actual ceremony of uh, peyote, which is just, again, fascinating. Some of the stories that people told, that I think they've possibly been the most open that I've ever heard them. So when you was filming it, was there any point that you was behind the camera going, "Yes, we, you know, we've got some footage here. We've got some, you know, breaking ground." Was it was it exciting doing it? Uh, for me, it was really exciting. I mean, I I didn't know like you know every almost everyone I went into there there were comedians I knew that you're going in like Nick Kroll or someone who I know pretty well and you're heading into that interview going like Nick's going to be funny I'm sure the story's going to be funny I'm not that you know I, I'm not looking for much more than like this is going to be great 
But there were people like Sting who was incredibly nervous. That that felt like, oh my God, he's inviting me into his apartment in Manhattan, you know, and he's willing to share this thing. What's his, what could he possibly be getting out of this? Or why would he ever say yes to this? And then you go and you're like, oh, he's really an advocate for these as tools, you know, and, and he really wanted to share that. And somehow he also was, had a sense of humor about it and, and um, had a sense of humor about himself and some of the situations he got in, but really wanted to share that, um, you know, these can be beneficial for people, but don't, don't do it casually and don't make, you know, don't, don't be an idiot, <laughs> which was really great. I was like, oh, that's, that's great. Cause I never had anyone tell me that as a kid, I was kind of, I don't mean to say kid, but like in, in, you know, as these things came across my path, I, I was like, you just kind of make mistakes on your own. And, and a lot of that is stuff that, you know, again, maybe it's not for you. It'd be great to know that. It'd be great to know that that's an option, you know, that, that like, mm. oh, I don't have to even think about this or um, I should be careful because I know my brain is, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes paranoid, so I don't need to heighten that, you know, or something. Um, but that now there's starting to be resources to actually have those conversations with people who might, you know, help you figure out what you need. Might not be psychedelics for sure. It, it definitely comes across that most people that are experiencing psychedelics say set and setting is crucial. And and certainly some of the stories like um, Sarah Silverman, for example, again, she completely reiterates that fact. Um, but within within the film as well, like you said, you you do highlight the historical elements of just how bad drug education got it. So you do these after school specials, which the UK audience wouldn't be as familiar with, but we're, we're certainly aware of them. Yeah, you know, we had our own different versions like Grange Hill, but th those kind of infomercials that you got to see in the 80s and, and potentially even now, how much damage do you think they actually do to the pursuit of actual knowledge and information? Yeah, I think the... Um... The thing it's it's like uh, for me it's about having real information you know like again I always just go back to parenting of like what do I want my kids to know about anything it's like well I just want them to have a bunch of facts assess this for themselves and figure out what they need everyone is different all everything in the world whether you're talking about a religion or a rock band or a or a, you know is personalized it's up to you what you need in your life and it's your choice um, so. So, you know, I, I keep coming back to this idea of like, I'm not an advocate for psychedelics. I don't think, you know, everyone should do them or even care if, you know, care about them. Um, but I am an advocate for rational conversation and facts. And this movie is for sure funny first, but they are real stories and real, these are facts. These are things that happen to real people. I think those, those educational films for me are this thing that they, they do damage in a couple ways is one, they're they're not the reality so you know like like that's not helpful like no one we don't need to spread more disinformation there's plenty of that to wade through already but kids who are interested in this area like they work if you're someone who's like oh i don't want to do psychedelics ever then you see one of those films you're like yep i'm not going to do them um if you are someone who's like interested or thinking about it or you know like you see one of those films you immediately are like well society doesn't get this they're ridiculous so that you're, you know, society is doing itself a disservice or educators or, you know, our trained professionals would do themselves a better service going like, we understand these exist. We understand these are out there. We understand you will come across them. It's like when we have sex education and, you know, that's evolved a lot in the years, but we're still as a society so repressed and we can't quite talk about it that like in a lot of communities, the answer is like, just don't do it. Let's not talk about it. And you're like, well, 
teenagers' bodies are telling them that it is what they're supposed to do. At some point, they're not going to believe you anymore, you know? So having, having rational conversation is the answer to almost everything and listening to each other, like always, is like, oh, yeah, right. If we just talk, we're all better off. So, so as a father, but also the writer and director of Have a Good Trip, was there any part of you that the father element was coming over and was thinking, you know, is this, is this the right thing and sending the right message? Or did you manage to distinguish the two roles? Well, it's funny because, um, you know, this was, this movie ended up being a little bit of a family affair. Um, my, my wife, Kim Huffman carries the music supervisor and, and put the soundtrack together with Yola Tango. So she was very involved. And then both of my kids appear in it because this was one of those things where shooting random times. And it was like, Oh, we have a green screen. It'd be great to get, um, I'd love to have like a little person in a top hat giving these sort of like warnings. Otis, can you do that? Are you, can you come over to it? You know, and um, Amity, my daughter was here the day we were shooting with Steve Agee and he mentioned there's like a little girl in the back seat flipping me off and telling me I'm going to die. And I was like, oh, let's just shoot it. Amity, come downstairs. You know, like I have a little girl upstairs, like who can, can actually make this. So they were all involved on that, on that side of it. Like I love sharing the creative process with the kids and the family. And, and we're, you know, on one level, we're just making a movie. So that's fun to involve them. On the other level, um, where you're a responsible adult and a parent and like what information do you want your kids to be exposed to, et cetera. By the way, my daughter had to learn, she was six years old and had couldn't give the finger. She had never done that before. And I had to explain like, this is acting. This is not something you really do in public, but that muscle wasn't even like working for her yet. She had to go like, um, so she did a great job and now she can give the finger to anybody she wants. Um, cause she's 17. Um, <laughs> but, um, but the other thing that happened, and I think it was a really good gut check for me as a filmmaker was my kids were getting older the, the whole time that this movie was coming out. And part of the commentary in the movie I was making was how these were presented to me when I was my daughter's age, these after school specials and this sort of age of hysteria where you don't talk about drugs and it's, there's a war on them and these are all crackheads and just put them all in jail. And I was like, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want my kids to watch this and just think like, Oh, you take drugs and it's a party. And like, that's great. Um, you know, I, I don't know if they should watch it until they're the right age, you know, but at the age that they watch this, that they're getting a, somewhat well-rounded they're having some laughs but they're getting a pretty well-rounded um uh, variety of opinions and stories and you know we always just talk about like you're you, you know like you have a lot of control to build your own reality to build who you are as a person to explore what you want to do like we're all gifted with a brain and a and free will and you know like Go get, go get information. If you're thinking, and psychedelics are one of a million things you're going to encounter in life. You know, um, if you're thinking about them, do it carefully, read books. There are a hundred books to read before you ever do a drug. Like books are a good, safe drug to take. You know, um, there's documentaries, there's movies. So many people have gone into this space and explored it and shared information. Learn about all that first, you know, um, get figure out who you are and what you're looking for all of that stuff um but it's the same advice i would give to them if they're like i'm thinking about being catholic i'm like okay well, now wait a minute let's talk about why you're thinking that what you need read the information there's lots of information out there like that can be a dangerous thing if it's not right for you you know like like these are all personal choices but but um inform yourself i think that comes across in the film that the public figures that 
have got experience with with taking psychedelics all say that of you know learn what you're doing and also crucially do it in a safe surrounding with people that you're familiar with because some of the some of the uh, less than affable stories involve being outside your comfort zone so from the experiences that you've learned and potentially had would you say that that's a fairly good message of you know just learn what you're doing be within your comfort zones and and you know be within a safe environment yeah i think i think that's that's good sound advice you know that the the harm reduction you know you can search psychedelics harm reduction and and there's lots of tips out there on the internet and stuff um Again, you know, I, I think for me, it's like, I think where it's most interesting to me and most powerful to me is in an even more controlled setting with real therapist of some sort, helping you work through what you're looking for. Um, I would also say like, as far as the, uh, you know, the point isn't like, oh, you can have a bad trip. So put all this stuff in place so you can go and have fun. And it's like an amusement park. The point is do all this work so that you have the most optimal setting to have the best experience. And the best experience I would define as helping you work through whatever you need to work through, which might involve a bad trip, by the way. Like you might confront some crazy, scary stuff, but that might be what you, that might be the work you need to be doing. You know, like, like it's not all just like, yeah, I went and had fun all day. So that was a success. It's like, that's, that's not the point, you know? I think it, it definitely comes across that you've got an interest in the evolution of this subject. So you, you mentioned a few times, it's certainly referenced in the film, that potentially we are going to go do, down therapeutics route. Do you think that the, the last, uh, well, 50 years have hampered that that you know, pursuit and direction? Yeah, I've I been, been reading a lot about the 60s. Like my parents were definitely, you know, I was born in 68. My parents were... were kind of beatnik hippies and theater people and living in Washington, D.C. and going to protests. And, you know, we're definitely of the flower power generation and stuff. And, you know, I think we have a tendency to dismiss that a little bit as now like, oh, they like to get high and be naked and whatever. But we forget how revolutionary that moment in time was across around the globe and the movements that came out of that. Deepak Chopra says it in the film, but whether it's it's, uh, you know, the women's rights movement, the civil rights movement, the um, green movement, that that there were, there were a number, you know, anti-war movement. There were all these things happening at once that were all saying the same thing, which was the way society is going right now is not working. It doesn't re represent us. It doesn't hear us. It does. It, it treats us poorly and we're killing the planet. Like, and I think psychedelics were a like rocket fuel for that, which like, quickly burst you out of out of normal thinking and go like, oh yeah, we don't have to do things the way we've always done them. I can see a version of this that reminds us we're all connected and that you're supposed to love each other in a real way that fixes a lot of these problems that we're yelling about. I mean, I know it's cliche and I go down these paths because it's fun to think through, but if like, if we actually profoundly really did treat everyone the way we wanted to be treated, then there would be no racism. Like, what, what, that'd be a great fix. If we could included animals and plants in that bigger picture, the planet would be healthy and we'd be able to like breathe better and we'd, we'd feel better. Like <clears throat> those things do connect and those were very revolutionary, non-profit driven <laughs> concepts. So society luckily, like 
really pushed back against that. I think for the last 50 years, it stopped us from having any kind of rational conversation about it. It was easier <clears throat> to put this stuff in the box by making it scary, by lumping it in with crack cocaine and other drugs, you know, and, and you know, Tim, Tim, Tim Leary was a, you know, a genius and a thinker and had great ideas and, and had was onto a lot of the stuff before anyone else, but also had like some, I would say, ego problems. And, you know, I think society was able to find, turn him into a villain that made this scary because there's this crazy lunatic telling everyone to, you know, do drugs that they don't want to do and that the, you know, everyone will be dosed and jump out windows. We're, we're not good at being, you know, when we're told we should be afraid of something, we all just go like, okay, okay, whatever, just do whatever. So, so yes, the last 50 years, I think by 1970, you know, there was this huge pushback societally to like put that all, all that stuff back in the bottle. Like that's too scary to change everything. And um, unfortunately it stopped any rational conversation. And, you know, the tests that have been done have been done quietly in little corners of academia. Um, and only in the last three years has it started to trickle out. I think because of the marijuana movement has has been a profitable people found out how to make money. And then, they, then, you know, at least in America, people go like, ah, it's not so bad. Everyone can, there could be some millionaires come out of this. So like, <laughs> I guess that'll be okay. Um, but also there haven't been, you know, like there's not like cults of marijuana, you know, freaks wandering the streets and murdering people, you know, like Charlie Manson or something. So it's kind of opened the door that like, Oh, maybe there's other drugs that we could look at. Um, and I think societally we're we're weirdly in this weird loop where we're kind of back where we were in the in the end of the sixties, going like none of these things are working. Like we're failing at like dealing with racism and listening to each other and treating each other bad. You know, like like you know, my daughter's seventeen and just going like I'm not represented in this culture, but I'm an American. What does that mean? You know, that's pretty crazy to be you know coming into adulthood and going like. Yeah, yeah, this country that I love and I'm being raised in doesn't really represent how I feel or or look or you know all that stuff. So, um, not that psych again, it's in the movie, but I don't think psychedelics are the answer for all the world's problems. But the, as Sting says, they could be a start and they could be a tool that helps with a lot of these things where we're where we've created a massive mental illness, you know, crisis, health crisis mm -hmm. that we have no answers for, you know, and. This might help. Maybe there's some ways it can help. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You, you mentioned Zach uh, or Timothy Leary, and you've got his son Zach within this. And one of the things that does keep coming across is that some of the people that have had the most vivid experiences, like Carrie Fisher, for example, yeah, they, they're fully you know, held their hands up that they've had mental health difficulties and that this is potentially really helped them. So do you think now the cat is out the bag that we can progress this research will be done and eventually we will have legitimized therapeutic uses, or do you think there could be a rollback at some point? Do you think there could be another slightly more conservative position that we should start pushing back on it again? It's funny. It's like, I'm talking to a lot of different corners of psychedelic study and fandom right now because of this movie so i'm getting exposed to a lot of like corners of like you know from burning man to st john's research center john hop i mean john hopkins research center you know and they're very different takes on it and stuff and i i for me i think the the service or the the moment that is important to kind of like like walk a fine line with is i think when people talk about these in therapeutic settings with you know, licensed professionals in some way and remind the public that you're not being dosed. These aren't for everybody, that this is a mental health. This is the same as your allergy medicine for some people. This is the same as going to a therapist. Like you don't care if somebody else goes to a therapist, let them just go do their thing. Um, as, as the more we can have that conversation and not just blankly like mushrooms should be legal everywhere. And then people get afraid, like, but I don't want crazy people driving cars on mushrooms. Like, let's not go down all those debates. We don't need to, like, that's not what this is. Like, um, you know, I, I could see there being like the way there's yoga studios or coffee bars, there's treatment centers everywhere or drop it in clinics or whatever. Like that there's one on every neighborhood that, that does a safe version of this. And, and that can still make a lot of money for some people. And that can help a lot of people on the mental health side. And, why wouldn't we all legalize that? You know, like the more we can get in those spaces where you go like, yeah, I can't argue against that. Like if people want to do something safe and know where the, the medicine or drug was made and what the quantity is and, you know, harm, again, harm reduction, when they leave the facility, they're not seeing things, you know, like that, 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 that seems like the win. Like that's where we'll, that, that this would keep moving forward if we can keep it on that track. I find it really interesting that you've had have so many conversations with, with all these different areas, as you mentioned. Probably a lot of people in psychedelics have reached out to you. The reason that I saw the film to start with is that there's a, a really big organisation here called the Psychedelic Society, um, who, are, who are good friends as well. And those ones that pointed out to me. So if you're ever in London, you know, feel free to look us up because there's always going to be people that are going to be interested to speak to you. Um, but what has the reaction been like um, from both 
sectors, people that are advocates of this and people that may be sceptical of this? What has been the reaction to the film that you've found? In, in general, fans of this space, whether, whether it's a profit motive or just they could change their life or whatever, fans of this space are the ones coming out to us and reaching out to us and com- having a conversation with us. And because these movies are released in a international way that that is great. Like the Psychedelic Society of London is seeing it at the same time as the Psychedelic Society in Austin, Texas, or by the way, like a bunch of people who just went to Burning Man or um, my father-in-law who's never thought about psychedelics, who's like a big fan of Sting and going like, hey, I thought Sting was cool or whatever, you know, like that it's, you're able to have this conversation all together at the same time. Um, and, and, you know, like, like what I've noticed is we're really bad at having conversations that involve gray areas right now. Mm-hmm. We have these conversations there. It's, like, it's black and white, pick a side and then go have your conversation. And this is like a fun thing that's like, in general, everyone's fans, but there's still a lot of gray areas to talk about, um, you know, especially with the legalization, legalization um, trajectory and stuff. Um, and it's it's been really fun. I, I mean, I'm not getting a lot of people who are anti this reaching out and going like, I want to talk to and yell at you or anything. So I, I've luckily not had that, you know, th- that experience. We've had a few, like, of course, you know, like, however many hundreds of thousands of comments on social, there's some that are just like, oh, I hated it. The animation sucked. Like, <laughs> I hate the music, whatever. And you're just like, okay, y- y- that's fine. T- turn it off. That's okay. <laughs> you know. But was it ever a conscious decision to to be involved in in quotation marks activism circles, or was it you just wanted to put something out there that was just purely people speaking about their experience? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I'm making a another doc right now with my son that is takes us into a bunch of issues about Native America and racism and how we see each other and stuff. And, and it's this thing of like, I want to share our personal experience first. Um, I don't, I think things that are not hitting, hitting the nail on the head and advocating and preaching about a certain thing are the most effective in that you're sharing your evolution and how you saw things and what you learned, you know, hopefully this other doc is a little more clearly that I think with the have a good trip, it was just like, I, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I said it already, but I, I think, I don't think I'm an advocate for psychedelics. I think I'm an advocate for people to have rational conversations about psychedelics. I think this is a really personal thing. And, and hopefully this movie, I, I, I do think it, the, the mission statement is these can be dangerous, but they can also be hilarious. Like that's, that's how I came into this is like, oh, I want to share some hilarious things from this dangerous corner of the world, but also have a bigger exploration of what that means, you know, that there's, there's a reality to this and then there's the hysteria to this and, and stuff. So I don't know, I, not to be political on the answer, but I, I wouldn't say, I, I I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to advocate for anyone else to do anything that they don't want to do, you know, like, um, because it is such a polarized discussion, as you mentioned, was there any problems in the production of it or getting it to a, a bigger network as Netflix? Was there any issues within that? Um, we definitely like the, the field of buyers was limited. Um, we had a couple things happen in the middle of when we took it out to sell it was like Disney was buying Hulu that we had some interest at Hulu, but then it was like, Disney's about to come in and, uh, and then we had another company that was like, gets all their financing from China. And they were like, you know what? We love it. But we just realized like, this could never play in China. They don't, you know, they don't 
have any kind of drug talk there. So mm. we can't put any money in, you know, so we had this thing where it was like, oh, interesting that there's sort of this self-censorship that goes on, you know, when it comes to certain topics. Um, you know, I think we were very lucky that Netflix exists right now. I, you know, this is something we never could have sold to, you know, to uh, NBC or, you know, like, I, I mean, I think... I've actually found like when I'm in London or something like BBC is pretty good about having a variety of opinions represented and stuff. And we don't really have that with our networks. The networks each have a brand that they feel like all the products should kind of represent in some way. That brand changes depending on hit shows and stuff. But we this was this kind of thing where I think Netflix's model is just like we love to find things that appeal to audiences, but we have a million different kinds of audiences. So we really feel like this will resonate with a certain kind of audience and hopefully it'll broaden beyond that as, as it's out there because it has a lot of, you know, they use their algorithm to connect it to a bunch of different things. And this movie was well positioned to have a bunch of different types of entertainers in it who comedy, documentary, mental health, like it had a bunch of topics that it could kind of connect into. Um, and Netflix was really like, make the thing you want to make, we support it and then we'll let it find that audience on our platform, you know? So we were lucky that it exists right now, I think. And I, well, just before we hit record, we, we did mention about the international audience because you said that you've done podcasts in Finland now. Uh, and you're right that sometimes the, the UK has a an image of being a little bit prudish, but you know, from, from my experience, we, we can be quite liberal in the sense that there's a prime example, there's a program here called naked attraction where it's people in a cubicle where they get completely naked and you pick the attraction. It's like blind date or the dating game based on their body parts. I've showed that to a few Americans and they're like, what the hell is this about? So we're not quite as prudish in this country as what some people may think, but have you had any audiences that, that you think all oh, China, China and, and some of those regions, Philippines being an obvious one as well, that just don't have the drug conversations. How have different regions perceived it? And like you said, mentioned Finland, you've done work with now. Um, has there been much of a reaction in those international territories? I mean, in, in general, the, the couple um, international podcasts I've done, <clears throat> a great one in, in, um, in Berlin too, that's, that's like the healthcare net. But these, these are people I think probably like you who are already exploring the space um, you know, that, that like represent the psychedelic society, um, conversation of Berlin, you know, and that there's an active group of people exploring this and talking about it. And they were like, oh my God, we love the, you know, come talk to us. Um, you know, we haven't had, I think because it's, it's in a, in a weirdly, it's in a weird safe space where it's on a net, it's on Netflix. If you want to go find this thing, you can, it's not propaganda. It's not being presented as like, um, it's not on public broadcasting, so it's not tax dollars funding it. You know, it's, it's in a weird way, this movie is sort of like, use it if you want to, which is like the bigger conversation with psychedelics, which is like, yeah, they're out there if, if you're interested, you know, like, um, but, but no, I haven't had any, you know, I was a little surprised about, I was, about the Chinese thing and going like, wow, the more money we take from China to make our content, the more restrictions we're going to have on our, what we make even if it's just for the profit motive of we want more Chinese people, you know, the market to be, our movies to play there more. So we're going to just cut these scenes. And it's like, oh, that really cuts our ability to tell stories the way that we would, you know? Um, so it that that's a slippery slope. We've all got to kind of keep an eye on it, I think. Um, and as I said, I, I read in some of the interviews with you that there, there were people that, that you 
you got close to, but got, got away at the last minute. Susan Sarandon being one of them. Was was there anybody like that that you was like, yeah, I really wish they'd made it in there, but you know, maybe next time. I mean, we had a the 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 probably the closest that that kind of slipped away was Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters. I know he's he's done some wonderful shows at Wembley over there. Um, he he um he at one point was very interested in being in it. He had a great story. I didn't hear the story, but you know, I talked to all his people. It kept coming in. Dave's ready. Just give us the date. We went back and forth and the date just never quite gelled. So that was one that felt like it got away and there's something good there. Uh, you know, we hope to maybe do a series with this or a, you know, part two of some kind and go back to Dave. The other one that we really tried, you know, I, I, I bugged as best I could uh, team Ringo Starr and team Paul McCartney, you know, that those were both like, you know, it would be fun now to sit down with them and talk about having tea with their dentist so many years ago and yeah. where that is for them now. They don't have to be advocates for it. What what little part of their journeys was that, you know, like did that help uh, either help, hurt, you know, what what lessons from that did they, did they take away and still like draw on if, if anything? Um, it felt like so so I bugged them as best I could and never quite got a uh, never got got a Beatle. But I'm I'm sure almost every documentary ever made in the world is always like, if we could just get one of the Beatles in it, that would be good, you know. <laughs> but what names? I mean, uh, Dave Grohl being a, a massive one for me. I'm a huge fan of him. It's like that, that would have been incredible. I even I, I even at one point was like, what if Paul? Wait, Paul. What if I could get Dave Grohl to sit and talk with you? You guys could do it together. <laughs> you know, like just any way that we could make that happen. But. Someday, someday. So, so you mentioned you, you hinted that you know maybe there's more space within this. Do you think? Do you think there could be more mileage? There could be other things we can do with this. Definitely. I mean, we have um, we had we shot about a hundred interviews, and at a certain point, went like we have way too much stuff. Many of these are like you want to sit with the storyteller because it's it, it you can't just rattle off the five top things and move on, and. There was like, it was a heartbreaking choice, but there's people like Bootsy Collins or Patton Oswalt or, you know, Whitney Cummings or the the Jackass team, you know, that I was like, let's just take this, save it. Let's not use a little piece of it. And, and you know, we'll make something with this. We'll do another one. We'll make a series. Um, so we already have in the can. I mean, also people like, you know, the artist Ed Ruscha. I have an amazing story with Ed Ruscha. Uh, the, the Devo, the band Squeeze, um, you know, like these really fun corners that you don't think of at all as like, oh, I bet Squeeze has a bunch of great acid stories. And then you sit with Squeeze and you're like, what the hell? These guys, you know, have amazing stories and are so funny. Um, um, I also love their music and it's meant a lot to me in my life. So I was like, I really want to include them. But then, I, you know, you, you do these calculations of like, how much can we fit into this one? And um, I didn't want to do them an injustice by just having them have one phrase or something either. So. You know, I, I hope. And then there's all these other ones. I think now that people have seen the movie, they really get it. And that there there'll be other people who like Susan Sarandon, as, as an example, is like I did a couple pre-interviews with her on the phone and she never quite felt like comfortable with what the concept was. And I think now that she sees it, maybe she'll go like, oh, yeah, that'd be fun to be a part of. Hmm. Or maybe not, you know, which is good, too. It's like if she's not into it, that's good, too. Um, Ozzy Osbourne, for example, told a bunch of great stories about early LSD experiences with Black Sabbath running around, um, um, sorry, not Canterbury, uh, uh, the fashion district in the late 60s. Oh, uh, Car Carnaby? Yeah, Carnaby. Running around Carnaby yeah. and being chased by cops and stuff. And it sounded like, 
this, it sounded like Hard Day's Night on acid. And I was like, well, this, this is great. We got to do a reenactment of this, you know, or something. Um, but then Ozzy at the end of it was really like, I, I don't think I want to be in the movie because I feel like it endorses, it endorses drugs. I don't want to endorse drugs or it's complicated with me and drugs. And we, you know, respectfully, we're like, great, we won't include you. But now I feel like I'd, I'd ask him to watch it and go like, well, maybe some of these yeah. stories would be good for a part two or whatever and see if he was into it. But, you know, maybe not, who knows, you know. I say that's that's great news to hear that there's potentially more within this because as we both mentioned and you specifically, there, there's just so many stories within this that I, I can imagine that was you any part of the editing process and how difficult that must have been? Yeah, hours and hours and hours and, and you know, finding finding the through lines, finding the the uh, you know, which version of the story didn't also touch on information that was in another story, making the stories kind of make sense and feel like, you know, and then where this after school special should go, where stock footage should go, how to keep an audience not confused that that there were like 20 ideas going on all at once. And it's also kind of psychedelic. At one point, the, the, the big example is at one point we were like, we should we should cut this movie to make it feel like you're on an acid trip. So there's that beginning where you're like not sure and you're learning about it and then you take it and you feel butterflies and you're like scared and then nothing's happening. So you take some more and now the movie's getting a little crazier and then <laughs> like you start laughing and it's really funny and then, oh no, you're getting scared. And we started to cut a version of that and I was like, oh, that's like an eight to 12 hour long movie because you have to do it <laughs> like a real, we can't do that. So someday we'll do the mega, the mega mix full eight hour version. <laughs> Yeah, I like to think there's like Blade Runner where there's going to be 16 different versions of this film because I can imagine that it was just a nightmare in a good way having to edit this because of just the amount of stories and figures that you had in it. Yeah, I would love to also for for fans of this to figure out a way to like, let's just make a, you know, a half hour out of Carrie Fisher's interview yeah. because she shared a lot of other stuff and, you know, like why, I, I you know, we felt so honored that we had this footage now that she's gone of, of stories that she wanted to share. And she shared wonderfully. It was like, Oh, we have this sort of, you know, time capsule for people that we can share. So anyway, I'd love to do that. Even, even though she's been in the movie and shared, you know, what is sort of the best of her stuff, but like there's a lot of other stuff to gain, to, to share from even people we put in. So. And they're legitimately unique documents, aren't they? Because I've never heard Carrie Fisher speak as openly about something like that. So it must have been an honor for you to be in front of people like that and have them open up to that degree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was really an exercise in, in, you know, like I think, I think one of my, whenever I talk to young writers trying to get into the business, like I have this weird, I don't know if it's weird, but this rule there's like, how do I be a writer? What do I do when I get in the room? I'm like, just, be cool. You know, when you're being a, like a jerk, you know, when you're like not being cool, just like if nothing else, just smile and like laugh when you're supposed to laugh, like just be cool. Um, there, this was an exercise in that of like, oh my God, I'm talking to Carrie Fisher. I'm in her house. And she, oh, no, no. It's like, okay, just be cool. It's cool. We're going to have this conversation. And then also the an interesting thing happens when you really are, as you know, as an interviewer, when you talk to people is like, you're good interviewers are good at empathy. Like they're really listening and starting to feel what their story, you know, their subject is talking about. Now that's 
complicated when that subject is like a different headspace and looking through psychedelics and stuff. So I would often do these interviews and be like really listening and trying to ask questions that naturally came out of whatever they were revealing. And then it'd be like, oh my God, we got to stop. I got to pick the kids up at school. And I'd be in this headspace that was like, you know, like shake it off and get back to reality and like, you know, carefully drive the car to uh, carpool. So, so I'm going to wrap up now because I've had over an hour of your time, which I'm really grateful for. Um, but for you personally, so what, what's what's the next project? What are you working on now? I'm, I'm uh, you know, I have a couple of animated shows that I'm working on um, right now. One is with Rivers Cuomo and Weezer that um, is really interesting and is it's a it's a family sit, sitcom animated, you know, like The Simpsons or something. But it's about an alien and and is really about human alienation and somebody like rivers in his real life, trying to figure out how to connect with people when you're, when you're a celebrity, when you're, um, when you see the world from different eyes. So that's interesting and been fun to work on with him. And, um, another one with, um, a comedian here named Roy Wood jr. Who's on the daily show. Um, very funny guy grew up in Alabama. He's raising a son. We, we were just talking about parenting and, um, it was so interesting to hear, being in his shoes of being an African-American um, in, you know, from the South, how you give lessons to your son about being the, uh, you know, growing into an African-American man and what extra rules you have to do, but telling some of those rules, which are very sad in this culture about racism and how you're perceived as, you know, the climate here um, and the stories that come out every day about cops and people and reactions and, um, and how to do that with some humor and maybe share some 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 uh, lessons and stuff. So that's been really fun. And then again, this this documentary with my son that that uh, we're working on about about uh, it's really Native America through the football team in Washington D.C. where I grew up and I've been a fan forever. And going like, oh, what does this logo and mascot and team name do in other cultures and other people, et cetera? So that's been fun too. So it definitely comes across that you, you you enjoy projects with a social conscience, something that's out there, you know, challenging thought processes. Is 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 that a conscious thing, or is it just something that you're inherently interested in? I think I've always been attracted to things that, uh, you know, a I think there's going to be some humor. B the humor might lend to a bigger conversation. But really, for me, it's always like, oh, I'm going to learn something, and that's very exciting. I'm always attracted to projects where I'm like, I get to actually like also learn something i'm not just executing a show i'm 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 getting something from it you know well donick i can't thank you enough you're the type of person i could speak to for hours because you know just absolutely fascinating and especially looking at the cabinets behind you as well that's just that's a treat in itself so, so thank you so much I, I genuinely do recommend people watch have a good trip it is amazing so thank you so much for joining us in the uk today thank you great to talk and uh, yeah call anytime we can we can uh, deep dive on the simpsons or whatever anytime you want we'll see you soon that was one of those episodes I didn't want to end because it was just there was just so much that I could get into and Donnick was such a nice guy as well. So thank you so so much for joining us, Donnick. And if you want to follow any of the work we do at UK Leap, then please do. It's Instagram and Twitter at UK Leap and our Facebook and website ukleap.org. And so thank yous, thank you to the producers, to Tristan, Nikki, and John. Thank you for all you're doing this show. Without them, you would not be listening to us. Thank you to My Name Is Ad for all the artwork you do. Thank you to Johnny Boyle's theme tune. Thank you for describing this pit us on your network and giving us all the exposure you do. And just thank you everybody for listening, sharing, subscribing, doing all those things and pushing these conversations forward. So 
yeah, please do keep doing that because it really does help. And we'll see you again soon because we've got a fair few really cool episodes coming up, actually, in being objective as I am, as you can imagine. But, yeah, please do stay tuned because there's some interesting ones coming up. So on that note, we'll see you again soon. Bye. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades Where true values seldom stray Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.